Well, hello everyone to Church of the Beloved. Welcome. We are very excited that you are here with us today. Uh, my name is David O'Toole. I am actually an associate pastor here at Beloved. And I just want to give a quick shout out uh, to the worship team, to the two of y'all. Y'all really killed it. Uh, I offered, for the record, Alex to be a backup dancer. He said, no, I'm not sure why. I'm a little offended, but they did okay without me and my hips, I guess. Uh, but I am very excited to be with you guys today. It's a little weird. I haven't done a virtual thing yet. There's a couple of you guys here, which is cool. Usually only there's a couple people when I preach normally. So this is nothing new for me at all. Um, but I am truly excited to kick off our Justice series this week. Uh, if I could be honest with you guys, I don't actually always love the way we talk about uh, justice. I don't often love the way that we define justice. I don't often love the way that we, uh, we go about justice. Am I being too mean? I mean, I, I, just, I just feel like there's, there's a way we talk about justice where somehow we almost forget to do justice with God. You know what I'm saying? Like, like we forget that God is literally the only one who is truly just. And we're well-intentioned and we're well-meaning as Christians, but I think there's, there's times where, where we literally do not include God in our quest of justice. And I'm like, God, God is literally just. So, so he doesn't just do justice things. Like, in his being, he's the definition of justice. And so how ludicrous would it be for us to pursue justice without also pursuing God? A lot of you guys were probably watching when a few weeks ago our sister Shana led a prayer for us, right? And it was in the, the heat, the height of you know, conversations around racial inequality and, and police brutality. I remember and when she was leading this prayer, she said this thing where she was like, uh, we should take time to rest in the Lord. And I don't know about you guys, but when I heard that, that was like daggers to my soul. Because I was angry at that time. And I was, I was antsy at that time. And I was actively processing, like, how do I depower those who have all this authority because they've used it to, to hurt the weak and the vulnerable? And in the midst of all these feelings, she comes and she says, we should rest in the Lord. And I was convicted and I was humbled and I was reminded of an important truth. That a Christian response to injustice isn't simply action. It isn't simply activity. It's actually sensitivity to the Spirit of God. That's the Christian response to injustice. It isn't simply a question about what we are doing. It's a question about who are we becoming? Who are we becoming? If you guys are like me, you know, you're sensing that the momentum of this conversation is kind of dying down a little bit, right? Maybe you're getting a little bit tired of actually all the actions. You're hopping from March to March and podcast to podcast, book to book, and you're just trying to do your part to fight, right, the inequality that we see. But we forget that there's, there's actually a fight here as well. That the enemy literally is doing his best to keep us on just doing things, to keep our minds on things below in the flesh so we forget the things above us. 
And that the presence of God is available to us and wanting to transform us and conform us to the image of Christ. And so my sermon, this sermon series is a call to just rest. It's a call to come to the Lord humbly, to kneel down before him and ask him, Lord, what is my motivation? What are my heart desires? Can you transform me into the image of your son so I can love people the way that you love people? And so my sermon uh, today is about justice and peace, justice and peace. And what I want to say is, you know, as we move forward, we're going to get into kind of the practical weeds of what it looks like for us to be called to do justice. But for today, I, I just want to touch on um, what I think is the heart of injustice. What, what's the root cause of injustice and how peace actually helps us dig up those roots so that the weed of inequality cannot have the last say and cannot survive. And so we don't have a lot of time, but I actually want to start with a story. About 35 years ago, there was a young man who was driving with three of his friends on a, a street near Brooklyn, New York. And as they were driving down this kind of desolate street, their car broke down. And so three of them decided to, to leave and to actually go and start walking to the nearest neighborhood for help. The only issue was it was very late, and they were all black. And the nearest neighborhood was an all-white, affluent neighborhood. And so they were walking, and as they were walking, they found a pizza place they wanted to go to borrow the phone. And as they did, they, they, they passed by a group of uh, teenage uh, white people who were partying. And nothing really happened. They kind of exchanged words, but they ended up just going to the pizza place to make the phone call. About 10 to 15 minutes later, as they exited the pizza place, uh, the same group of uh, teenage, uh, teenagers gathered around them, but this time they had gotten more people and were carrying weapons. As you can imagine, a fight ensued pretty shortly after. One of the young men was able to run away from the group to safety and was unharmed. Another one wasn't as lucky. He actually got severely beaten even as he pleaded for his life. And the last young man, a man by the name of Michael Griffith, actually was chased so hard by the group of teenagers that he had to run into a busy highway and was struck and killed by an oncoming car. He was only 23 years old. And so as you can imagine, this raised a whole new level of racial tension in New York. There were riots and there were protests and there were marches. And it was at one of these marches that witnesses said that they heard a mantra, a phrase that stuck with them and has been carried from march to march to similar uh, uh, unrest and marches of injustice. And it was the phrase, no justice, no peace. No justice, no peace. And this is a poignant statement, right? I mean, it's, it's literally from the hearts of people who are, who are just so fed up with black lives being devalued in this country that they're like, I, I literally cannot rest. I cannot allow rest or peace until me and my children are treated with the dignity that we deserve. 
It's a strong statement. You feel the conviction in it. But there's another truth that I actually wanted to pull from this statement as well. Because if it's true that we cannot have peace without justice, I'm going to argue that it might be true we also can't have justice without truly pursuing peace. They're intertwined. They are defined and achieved through each other. And so in other words, your definition of peace will directly influence the effectiveness of your justice. In, in, in other words, if you are trying to pursue and do justice without grappling and wrestling with what it looks like to also pursue peace and be peacemakers, I would actually argue that your justice is powerless. And we'll see that more as we go on. I think peace is a very loaded word. It's probably more loaded than we realize. Uh, we probably don't even understand what it really means. Have we ever even seen it in our times? But I think that this is God's ultimate goal. And God is a God of peace. That's what he's striving for. When he looked 35 years ago and he saw what happened on the streets of Brooklyn, when he looked even in his own city and saw what happened in the South Pulaski Road, that his heart broke. And God was angry and he was sad. And his desire was for us, his children, to pursue peace. I just took a picture. I have a slide of this phrase, no justice, uh, no peace. I took it when I was in, uh, walking up Milwaukee in Wicker Park. And I, and I saw it, and I kind of liked it because I liked the, the picture on top of the sunset and all the colors. And I was just pondering, you know, what I thought justice meant, what I thought justice looked like, and, and what I thought peace was looking like. And I thought it was interesting that the artist depicted peace as this way, a sunset, with all these different colors. You can take a slide down now. And it made me think, you know, when we hear the word peace, what do, what do we think? What, what comes up in our mind? What images do we conjure up? So I told you all in the crowd, I'm going to be asking you questions. So I hope you were ready. I'm, I'm genuinely curious. Speak it out loud. When you hear peace, what do, you, what do you think of? What words come to your mind? What images come to your mind when you hear peace? Don't be scared. Any ideas? Is it just quiet? Is that, is that your answer? Quiet? That's, that's peace. Stillness. What was it? Shalom. I love that word. We're going to get back to that. Shalom. It's a good one. Anyone else? What was it? Thriving. And you're like me. That's what I thought of, you know? I didn't think of like stillness or quiet or like just like a sunset. I, I thought of flourishing. That's what I thought of. Like an activity of, of fruitfulness. That God, God's creation is almost like a, a harmonic relationship between all of them. He has this order, this social order he set about how all his creation should act together. And when they actually do that, it's just like money. You know what I'm saying? It's just like good, like he says. And there's shalom. And there's justice. And so what that means, and this is kind of my argument, my main argument for my short sermon uh, today, is that injustice happens when we break that social order that God has set. When we break the harmonic relationship. You see what I'm saying? 
But when we disrupt the shalom and the order of how things should go, that's the heart of injustice. We deny what God is saying is valuable in his creation. We put ourselves above what God says we should cherish. And shalom is broken. I have to admit, this language of like kind of social, uh, social uh, um, order, I kind of stole a little bit from this uh, Trevor Noah. You know Trevor Noah, the comedian? Right? Very funny guy. But he had a very serious video on uh, the things that were happening recently, uh, specifically the, the looting that was happening. And what he was talking about, he said, you know, a lot of people are mentioning how the looters are doing, you know, illegal things, and they're almost breaking this social contract, he called it, with the society they're in. That's what's happening. He said, but what you have to realize is that the people who are above them, who were called to protect them and, and to serve them, to have their best interests at heart, they broke the contract first. And now you see this almost tug of war of no one trusting the other going on. And I thought, man, that, that is so true how society is almost a social contract that we, that we all ascribe to about how we're going to treat one another. But the one thing I thought was wrong is that we didn't write the contract. God wrote the contract. God set the order. And so when we break shalom, it's against God. I think of David in his psalm, he says, it's against you and you alone I have sinned. Our injustice, first and foremost, is against the Almighty. Because he set this order in the very beginning, in the garden. Did you guys see it in the garden, the order that he said? Y'all? Y'all? I don't believe y'all. Y'all didn't see it, did you? I'll go back to the passage. We'll see. In, in, in the verses we went over, there's, there's three what I call almost categories of creation that God has. Three almost archetypes that there are, that he, that he mentions in these verses. Any guesses of what, what they are? What, what are the three categories that God kind of mentions in these verses? Three archetypes. Any guesses? No? The earth is one with the waters and the land, right? Animals, number two, the sea, the fish in the sea, the birds in the air, the animals who are walking across the land. What's the third one? What do you, what do you think? Us, right? Man and woman. We are the three kind of archetypes of creation that's mentioned in Genesis. And notice what God doesn't do. God doesn't just make us and then step back and let us do our thing. Because he knows if he does, it'll be chaos, right? It'll be unjust. We won't know how to relate to each other. We'll be selfish. We'll be domineering. And so God steps in. He says, I'm going to set the order of how you should each relate to one another. And I'll do it through humans. That's what he does. And so in verse uh, 28, he tells humankind, be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. He's saying, take care of the earth. Subdue the earth. Cultivate the earth. And those animals, the animals are wild. So set order to the animals as well. Not just for their good, but for your own good. For mutual flourishing and shalom. 
And so this is why, actually, as, as Christians, we should really, really care how we as human beings treat the earth. Because it's about shalom. And we should really, really care about how human beings treat other animals. Because it's in here, it's about shalom, the order that God has made. Did you know we could do injustice against the earth? And we could do injustice against the animals that God has made? If we break any of God's social order, that's injustice. And so we should be mindful of that. Because it's about keeping the shalom. But of course, the injustice we're talking about today is the social contract, the social order God has set before us about how we should treat each other. And it's that breaking of the social order that, that has brought us to this point today. At first glance, you know, you don't actually see any clear instruction that God gives us to each other, right? When you read a passage, you don't, you don't see the same things he does about the earth or, or the animals, However, when you really look and read between the lines, what you realize is that God's direction to humans is actually unique. And it's mind-numbingly different and greater than when he gives anybody else. And in order to explain that more, I want to show you an image, another image that I have. You can pop up the slide of a, there we go. These are idols that were made of deities, I believe it was in India. And I don't have enough time to go through all the details, but I'll just say this. You could tell by some of the handiwork and the details, um, one, what the deities that they were reflecting and how much the people cared and um, ch cherished these idols as not just lifeless items, but as parts of God or deities themselves. And so what I want to say about that is that what we see in Genesis is actually a very similar idea. The language is very similar. In verse 27, it says that God creates mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he creates them. Male and female, he creates them. It's kind of a redundant verse. God creates them in the image, in his image he creates. It kind of just reminds you again of how important this is in this passage. And what's happening here is that literally it's evoking the same language as they would in ancient times of someone making an idol that represented not just a, 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 um, a reflection of a deity, but an extension of a deity. Like parts of the deity would be in the thing. It wouldn't be a lifeless nothing. It, the supernatural would have come down to make its home within it. And so it's saying that, that that's what God is doing with some differences that Instead of someone else making this idol from a deity, the deity himself, God, is making this fearfully and wonderfully with his own hands. And the second thing is that he's also breathing life, his spirit, into these idols so that they could actually reflect and look like him. And so it's less a handcrafted, wooden-made wooden idol, and it's more like almost like a mother giving birth to a child who bears some of her DNA. That's what's happening here with us being made in the image of God. And honestly, the implications of that are, are, are crazy. 
that we bear some of the essence of God. But one thing that's clear is that by sharing his likeness, what God has said over every human being, black, white, brown, or yellow, is that you have a dignity and a value that cannot be denied. If you are my child made in my likeness, you have a value. You have a worthiness. You have a dignity that no one can take away from you. And this is ultimately what I want you guys, to help you guys understand about justice. Is that ultimately it's about people being valued as image bearers of God. And us reconciling people with one another so that we can honor the order that God has set before us of how to care for each other. Here's the hard part. Uh, this applies to both uh, the oppressors as well as the oppressed. Both were made in the image of God. Those who are leaders and those who are marginalized. Those who are powerful and those who are weak. And we're actually called to reconcile, to forgive, so that both parties are valued and honored in the likeness of God. I don't know about you, but when I often think about justice and the way I want to do justice, I want to identify the oppressors and I want to punish the oppressors. But Shalom says that we pray for our oppressors, that we love the oppressors even, and that we ask that God changes their heart. God opens their eyes so they, they can see that they, with everyone else, are also made in the image of God. Oh, running out of time already. I'll, I'll, I have um, one more thing I want to say about the image of God then. And that's that we didn't do anything to earn it. There was nothing about human beings that God was like, oh, you're uniquely qualified for me to put my stamp print, the stamp of, of imagery on. God just chose us. Right? In his grace and in his mercy, he just chose us to be image bearers of him. It's grace. Because if God actually decided based on merit, if God was only just, we wouldn't have the dignity that he's given us. But God looked at you and God looked at me. Honestly, God looked at Brianna and God looked at Ahmad and God looked at Laquan. God looked at Trayvon. God looked at Michael. He said, you are all bestowed with my likeness and the honor that that brings. And so you can imagine that even as like, like Cain and Abel, their blood is crying out from the ground up to God, calling for justice. That he's longing for us, the rest of us, to be like Jesus. Who when he was on the earth and when he was loving people, he didn't ask why they were worthy to be loved. He didn't ask if they had a criminal record. He didn't ask if they were educated enough, if they worked hard enough. He didn't ask if they were following the right crowd. He didn't ask if, if, 
if they had um, complied with the police, if they had resisted arrest. He didn't ask those questions. When Jesus died on the cross, he didn't think about the past and the actions of the people he was dying for. He simply valued their lives because he knew that they were made in the likeness of God. And so this is who we as Christians are called to be to this world as peacemakers. That we would be people who are quick to welcome and quick to invite and quick to protect. We would do all that first and we would ask questions later. We'd be quick to love. We'd be vessels of justice who love people for no other reason than the fact that God loved them first. And maybe if we bring this type of shalom peace back to the world, then we can be just in the way that our God is also just. Let's pray.